it over. But on our way to Grace Seminary, mine, a ride to the University of Toledo. Well, I was born in Toledo, and my grandparents lived in Toledo. And when I was little, they took me to the Toledo Zoo. So I started telling Paula all about the Toledo Zoo. I said it was the best zoo in the world. It was huge. It, it, it was cutting edge. You know, we're kind of zoo nuts. So we thought, hey, we have to make a side trip to see the Toledo Zoo. And I built its reputation up way more than I should have. Because when we got there, and we walked through the rundown path that ran under the street and up the ramp, it was a disaster. It looked awful. This zoo that I thought was acres was inside one block. Amazing what the eyes of a kid will do, right? This place that had so many exhibits only had a few. It had a reputation in my mind for being something that it wasn't. But the reality of it, when we came and we saw it for ourselves, we were really disappointed, kind of frustrated. And Paula sort of gave me that look of loving support, but why in the world did you drag me here? This is awful. Maybe they've improved now. I don't mean to disrespect the Toledo Zoo. But in the early 80s, mm, not so much. Now, reputation. That's something that can be really solid, really stand out. But if there isn't something to back up the reputation, then really reputation is completely meaningless. And we're going to see that as we go into the church at Sardis. We're going to learn much, much more about how their reputation wasn't reality at all. To begin with, though, before we get into the words of our Lord to the church at Sardis, I think it's helpful to get context about the city of Sardis and about the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ, that each of the letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, each of these churches has a message to them, and we want to start with what Sardis is as a city, a little bit of culture so that we can understand some of the images that Christ employs in this letter. So let's talk about Sardis. Sardis, like so many of the other churches that are now in modern-day Turkey, was a church that was in a pagan culture, faced great challenges as far as walking with God for this church because they were in a culture that rejected Christianity and basically followed paganism. But we don't see the persecution mentioned in Sardis that we see with the other churches that we've looked into so far. As far as the history of Sardis, it's rather interesting. It was a citadel that was built on top of a hill that had extremely steep slopes all the way around it. In fact, in ancient times, Sardis was considered sort of a natural fortress, almost impossible to overthrow. At about 700 B.C., the Persians were coming through and they wanted to attack Sardis, but when they saw the steep slopes and they saw the walls of the city, they said, we'll just wait, we'll wait them out and see what happens. Well, what happens in the night as spies were looking over the city of Sardis 
One of the guards on top of the wall loses his helmet, and so he goes out a secret door to retrieve the helmet, and he goes down a secret path, and the spies saw it. When the guard returned to his post, he thought that the city was so impregnable that he would just fall asleep. And guess what happened? The Persians went up the secret path through the secret door, and as a result, Sardis was overthrown. Almost 500 years later, virtually the same thing happened with people abandoning their posts, not looking at what they were to do, and Antiochus III came through and did the same thing. Sardis finally lost a good bit of its population and the size of the city in an earthquake. As many of you know, that area is prone to earthquakes. And sometime during the first century, there was an earthquake about 17 AD, and a good part of the city fell and collapsed as a result of an earthquake. Now, something that all of these things have in common. Disaster came unexpectedly, and in two out of those three examples, human neglect resulted in its demise. And I think we're going to see as we look into Sardis that this history is descriptive of what was going on within the church at Sardis, where there were problems as a result of neglect and falling asleep. Something else we see as we look at this first verse, notice it says, the angel, the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we've gone through four other letters. We're on our fifth one now. And each one of the letters that Christ writes to these churches that are in modern-day Turkey, each one of them has an issue. And each one of them has identification by the Lord Jesus Christ of some attribute, some characteristic that speaks to some of the needs of the church. So let's talk about that as we look at this. When Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits, when we looked in the first chapter, we saw that description of our Lord in the first chapter as well. And the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit. We went into a great deal of explanation as to why, and we're not going to revisit that this morning, but basically what we find in Scripture is this truth. The Holy Spirit does work in the church, and the Lord Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to do that work. Now, we need to remember this. Within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is a structure that exists where the Son and the Spirit are under the authority and in submission to the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit in submission to Him. The teaching of Scripture is the Father sends the Son and the Spirit, and the Son sends the Spirit. So when Jesus is saying in this text that He has the seven spirits, meaning the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about is authority over the church. What he is telling the church is, I control and send the Spirit of God which ultimately or whom ultimately controls you. So that's the reminder to the church at Sardis. And there are a couple of scriptures that talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
the Scripture tells us something very important about the Holy Spirit. It says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Spirit of God actually takes us and places us into the body of Christ, an important ministry for the Spirit of God. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here the Spirit of God has an integral part in church unity and in the church doing the things that we're supposed to be doing as a church. What the Word of God is telling us to do is to submit to the ministry and the work of the Spirit of God. It goes on to say this, there is one body, referring to the church, and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the Spirit of God has this important ministry within the church, and what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis is this, you need to yield to me as the one who is ultimately in authority, but you also need to yield to the ministry of the Spirit of God. Somebody once said years ago that the Holy Spirit could leave many churches and they would never know that he was missing. We don't want to be a church like that. We want to see the work of the Spirit of God integral, a part of our church, where we follow his lead, where we listen to what he says. But notice the Lord also says he is not only the one who has the seven spirits here in this first verse, but he is also the one who holds or has the seven stars. Now, when we looked in the first chapter, we saw that the seven stars were the pastors of those churches. So what the Word of God is saying this, He sends the Holy Spirit, but He calls the pastor to a given church, and He is the one who is ultimately in authority over that pastor. You know, something we need to remember is this. No church is a church because of the pastor. The pastor is God's servant sent to minister, but they are not the church. The church is the church. The pastor is sent to minister to the church, to teach, to encourage, to train within the church, but he is not the church. Lose the pastor and the church still continues. That's the idea. And when Jesus says to this church, I hold that pastor in my hand, what he's saying is, I am the one who controls and directs what that pastor is to do. The Apostle Paul said this to the church at Ephesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, now look at their job, to equip saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The idea is, as Christ directs the pastor to teach and train the church, the church responds by becoming engaged in ministry and growing in their faith and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The text goes on to say this, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our goal as a church and the goal of the pastor is to see people progress in spiritual maturity so that they can reach this place of completeness, fullness in their walk with God. So this is what Christ is saying to the church at Sardis. I'm in charge of the Holy Spirit. I'm in charge of the pastor. So listen to me. Then we come to the part of this passage where the Lord addresses a course correction that is necessary for the church at Sardis. When we look at Sardis, we find this familiar phrase that begins our text right here in the first verse as it continues. And this is what it says, I know your works. Now, as we've looked at the previous churches, what we've seen is this. When Christ says, I know your works, He is not talking about just a casual acquaintance. He's talking about intimate knowledge. He has looked into not only what the church at Sardis does, but He has looked into why they do it. And he has looked into their heart, and he has seen what's going on. So when Jesus says, I know your works, he's not talking about reputation. He's talking about reality. I see beyond the facade that you put on, and I see right into the heart. And you know, this is true of churches, but it's also true of individuals. I've counseled so many people who have come to me and said, Pastor, I'm the only one in this church with problems because when I come to church, I see everybody else and they have a smile on their face and they look like all is well. But when I come in, I'm not feeling that at all. I feel awful. Am I the only one? We all put on church face, right? When we come, I remember when my kids were little, as we were preparing to come to church, I would be screaming at them at the top of my lungs, angry, ready to have a meltdown, walk through the doors of the church, well, good morning, it's great to be in the house of God, <laughs> right? We can all put on that facade, that look, because that's what we want people to see. Well, listen, there's one who sees beyond that. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at the outward manifestation. He looks at the inward reality. And this is what he says to the church at Sardis. Because what he says to them quite clearly is this. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. Now, what does that mean, you have a reputation of being alive? If the average person were to look at the church at Sardis, they would say, this is a model church. They're doing stuff. They are accomplishing so much. They have all kinds of programs and activities and all kinds of things going on. This is a live church. That's the impression. That's the facade that they had. But look at the next statement, and we find that that facade was definitely not reality. You see, what we find the Word of God tell us is that although they had a reputation or literally a name for being alive, in reality they were dead. Now what does the Word of God mean by dead? When you go to a body and it's non-responsive, 
and it's not doing anything, it's either dying or it's dead, right? It's got problems if there's no response and no activity. Well, I think the same thing is true when it comes to a church, but it wasn't the outward activity that it's talking about. It was the inward reality. Although they they were very busy about doing things, church things, there wasn't the heart behind it. There wasn't the spiritual motivation to do it. Sometimes as a church, we fall into the trap of going through the motions of doing religious stuff that we know that we're responsible to do, but our heart isn't directed toward the things of God. It's directed toward perpetuating the church, or it's geared toward our own personal purposes and reasons. It's not about God. It's about us. This is what was going on in the church at Sardis. They had made church more about me than about God. And as a result, when Christ looks at them and sees their activity, He says plenty of activity but no life behind the activity. Christ isn't looking for tradition. Christ isn't looking for finding the current it book about how to have a good church and saying, we will find and follow these principles and we'll have a live church too. Christ is about from the heart, loving Him, loving the church body, and serving in the way that Christ calls us to serve. So this is what He was calling the church at Sardis to do. He's first of all identifying the problem, and the problem is really severe. They weren't living up to their reputation. In reality, they were dead something that stands out to me. When we look at so many of the other churches, we see persecution mentioned, right? Every other church so far, I know that you live in an area where there is great persecution. Something is conspicuous by its absence in this letter, and that is persecution. So I started thinking about that. Why is persecution not mentioned? And here's the idea. Persecution happens when we're actually doing something for Christ. When I'm sharing the gospel effectively, the last thing the evil one wants me to do is to bring more people into the kingdom. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to try and shut me down. Cut it out. You're too effective. To this church that was going along and getting along with those in the community... There was no evangelistic outreach, no witness for Christ. Other Christians looked at them and said, wow, they're great Christians. Maybe even the community looked at them and said, wow, those are really nice people. We like them. We don't exactly want to join them, but they're fine in their own space. What God wants of us is to be a witness for Christ. And when you are a witness for Christ, you will face persecution. This was not being experienced at the church at Sardis. So what does Christ say to them? After he identifies the problem that they have a reputation for being alive, but in reality they're dead, he has a simple message for them. Come awake. Wake up. 
and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, this message to the church at Sardis is something that I think is important for us to grasp as Oakland Bible Church. His call to wake up. Isn't it easy for us to sleepwalk through our faith and through being a part of a church body? It's easy for us to just sort of settle in and muddle around and be happy with status quo and sleepwalk through our time of service to Jesus Christ. What God is calling the church at Sardis to do is to awaken spiritually, to stop just looking at their church and saying, hey, yeah, it is what it is and we'll just go on, but to look and to ask as individuals, am I sleepwalking through my service to Christ in this case, the church at Sardis, and in our case, in Oakland Bible Church? Have I engaged Have I looked at the importance of identifying my spiritual gift and employing it in service to the church body? This is what God wants us to do, to wake up from this kind of slumber and to become involved in serving Jesus Christ through the church. I think it's significant that the book of Revelation begins with these letters to churches because church is God's plan we're reaching the world and growing those who are reached. So it's important that as believers, we recognize our role and that we wake up to these things. Because look at what Christ says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What Jesus is saying in this text is, I am doing an evaluation. I am assessing where this church is. And what I find is they get the grade of an incomplete. They're not passing. They're not failing. They're just incomplete. God wants us to recognize that we are, as individuals, going to be assessed by the Lord Jesus Christ in what we do in serving our brothers and sisters in Christ and our world. And while in our society so much of what we do is based on individualism, what we find in Scripture is God wants us to work with brothers and sisters in Christ through the church. That's His purpose. That's His plan. So what He's saying to these people And Sardis is, wake up, understand that you are being evaluated, that there is something wrong, address what is wrong. Jesus says this to all of us as believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God wants us to understand there is an accountability to him. He is assessing us. He is looking into our behavior and our activity. And one day we stand before Him and we give an account. Something else the Lord says. As we come to the third verse, the Scripture goes on to say that they were to change course through repentance. 
Look at verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Now, the church at Sardis was a church that had heard the teaching of God's Word. Many of them had heard the gospel and received the gospel. But they had come into this place of mediocrity. And as a result, they had forgotten the things that they had once learned. You know, as believers, again, it is so easy for us to come to the place to where we forget important truths of God's Word. And we just let it pass. We move past it. What Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, and I believe to all believers who upon self-reflection, look and say, I've forgotten. I'm not where I used to be spiritually. I'm not on the path that I need to be in following Jesus. We need to remember where we were, what we've heard. And then, rather than just hearing it, look at what it says. Keep it up or keep it and repent. Now, here's the idea. When we know the right thing to do, Guess what we have the responsibility to do? To do it. To keep God's Word. I think sometimes as believers, we confuse information that we've acquired through the years and think that our spirituality rests in what we're able to recite as far as our knowledge of Scripture. But in reality, what Scripture says is it's not what we know, it's what we do with what we know. So what Jesus is saying to this church is keep the things that I've taught you. Live it. And then where you see things that are off the mark in your lives, come to the place to where you repent. Look again carefully at this third verse. Keep it and repent. Now, I want to explain to you the difference between regret and repentance. No doubt, as many in the church at Sardis were reading this, they felt really bad. I mean, I want you to think about this. You hear a word from the Lord, and the Lord says to you, you're not getting it right now. You are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. How would that make you feel? I don't know about you, but man, I would have a lot of regret. I would look at that and say, this is the most important thing in my life. I ought to live this. If I really believe it, I need to live it. But regret is not the same as repentance. In our society, a lot of us think, as long as I feel really bad about something for long enough, then I've addressed it. Well, no. That's not the case. Just feeling bad about something for a while doesn't change the person. Now, that regret can lead us to repentance, but it's not equivalent to repentance. What it means is this. When I look and I say, there is something wrong, and I feel badly about it, so what I need to do is change course and go in the right direction. That's when regret can lead to repentance, and repentance can accomplish something in our lives. So here the church at Sardis is being told, look, change your course, change your path. Stop following this path. Repent. Keep the Word of God. Change the way that you've been living. And then the last part of that third verse, look at what it says. 
there are consequences to you as a church body if you don't. After he says, repent, he gives this warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour that I will come against you. Now, often when we hear the idea of coming as a thief, we think of Christ's return, and that's not what this, path, this, this passage is talking about. Think about when a thief comes. When a thief comes, he comes unexpectedly. That's what gives him the ability to steal, right? If he opens the door and you're sitting in a chair with a shotgun across your lap, he turns around and he exits, right? It's when you aren't paying attention that the thief comes. That's the idea. Well, here, what he's saying to the church at Sardis is this. Like those guards from your history that fell asleep on the wall, and allowed invaders to come in because they were not paying attention and they weren't following their responsibility that God had called them to, or not the God, but their, their, their commanding officer had called them to, the city was overrun. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. If you don't wake up, if you don't change the way you're doing things, if you don't repent then you are going to suffer by the Lord Jesus Christ coming against you and bringing God's discipline to you as a church and to you as individuals. We've seen in several of the churches that we've looked into that God disciplines those He loves. God cannot and will not allow His church to continue down a path that ignores Him. God cannot and God will not allow His church to ignore Him. That's what the church at Sardis was being warned against. They needed to wake up. They needed to change. Final part of this letter. As we come to the closing verses of this passage, verse 4 talks about how we need to commit ourselves to being a follower of Christ and the rewards that follow. While verse 3 gave a warning, verse 4 begins to talk about some of the good points that we have to look forward to. So look at the first part here in the fourth verse. Yet, you still have a few people in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, this part of the passage is talking about a core of people, a remnant that was walking with the Lord. You know, something I've seen as churches begin to change and demise kicks in, there's often a faithful remnant of people praying, of people being consistent in following the Lord. What God is saying to the church at Sardis, and I think what God says to all Christians is, make sure you're a part of that remnant, the ones who are walking in white. What does it mean to walk in white? It means that you are living in purity, that you are living righteously. The idea of having garments soiled by the world means that as you are out in the world, you have allowed the world to stain your righteousness. The picture of what we're seeing here in the church at Sardis was this. They were faithful in their activities, but not so faithful in what they were doing when they were away from church. 
And here's something we need to really grasp. We cannot and we should not try to compartmentalize our lives. We can't look at our life and say, this is the sacred part of my life and this is the secular part of my life. And when I'm in church, I will live for the sacred. And when I am outside of church, I will live for the secular. And the two have nothing to do with one another. What we really see in Scripture is, my walk with God affects every single thing I do. It affects my marriage, it affects my workplace, it affects my home. Everything that I believe in Christ Jesus should affect every area of my life. I should not have my clothing, my spiritual clothes, stained by the world. When Paul was talking to the church at Ephesus, he was talking about putting on and putting off things. And this is what he says to the church at Ephesus, this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Listen, if I'm behaving the way I did before I came to Christ, then I have not put on the new clothes that are mine in Christ Jesus. And here's the funny thing about clothes. You will find this in the bottom of my closet. Dirty clothes are not cleaned by hanging around with clean clothes. When I'm too lazy to take the laundry downstairs that's dirty and I throw it and hide it in the bottom of my closet so Paula won't see it, it does not somehow become clean by hanging out down there with all of the clean clothes that I have hanging in my closet. It doesn't work. Same thing is true as far as us as believers. We are not going to be able to mix our old way of life with our new way of life. We don't want to be soiled by the world. We want to walk in righteousness. We want to walk in a way that pleases God and honors God. And that brings us to the next part of this passage. As we come to verse 5, it says this, one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. We have in the future a time where sin will no longer be a part of our experience. When we are in heaven, when we are with Christ, sin will no longer have presence in our lives. Man, how I look forward to that day. That's the hope that we hold on to. That hope of walking in righteousness not being soiled by the world around us, but living righteously before Christ, being clothed in image because He made me worthy to experience that. God promises us that. But then we have this statement, after being clothed in white, and I will never blot His name out of the book of life. 
Now, out of all of the letters that we find in the book of Revelation to the churches, this one statement has been one of the more confusing statements that we find in Scripture. There are those who read this and they say, because Jesus is promising that I will not blot your name out of the book of life, it's possible for someone to lose their salvation because what he's saying is the book of life contains all of the saved people and Jesus saying that he won't blot it out means that he could. Well, let's run that through a logic process, shall we? When Jesus says, I do not lie. God says, it is impossible for me to lie. Does that mean that sometimes he lies and sometimes he doesn't? No, that positive statement means that he does not lie. Right? So, here in the book of Revelation, when it says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life, it's a promise that's given clearly by the Lord Jesus Christ that we will be kept in the book of life, not contingent on our behavior, but that is the focal point of my blessing. As I look and I say, I want to live for Christ, I want to commit to being a follower of Christ, that's my incentive because I look forward to being with Christ and I live in the confidence that I am Christ's and He is mine. That's the idea of this text. There are some Bible teachers that also teach that the idea of being in the book of life is that it includes even our physical life that we have. And the idea is that when we die without Christ, we are facing the second death. While I am alive physically now, that resurrection to death that those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ will experience means that their name has been blotted out of the book of life because they never came into a personal relationship with God. We aren't sure. Both of those interpretations are produced by many good Bible teachers. But let me assure you of this. If you are a child of God, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you will never lose that standing with Him. That is an absolute promise that we find in Scripture. A couple of verses, and I think these are powerful ones, that speak of the fact that once I have a relationship with God, I always have that relationship, is this. 2 Corinthians 5.5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, what the Scripture is telling us in that text is this. When I trust Christ as my Savior... I have a down payment given to me. That's what guarantee means in this particular text. And that down payment is the Spirit of God. And He's given to me forever. So I will never lose that relationship with God because the Holy Spirit is in me. Something else. Ephesians 1, 13, it says this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, so that's the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, here a different image. Rather than a down payment, a seal. Think of the first century. When a person received a document, there would be a seal that was placed on the document, and all of the authority of the kingdom was behind that seal. And no one would break that seal except the one for whom it was intended. 
So what it's saying here is the Holy Spirit is our seal. He is the promised Holy, Holy Spirit, and He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the powerful work of the Spirit of God in our lives. So in this text, when it says Christ will not blot out our name from the book of life, it is not saying that in any way we lose our salvation. Final part of this passage I want us to look at, and that is we have this to look forward to when we live faithfully and righteously. It says, after I will never blot out His name from the book of life, I will confess His name before my Father and before the angels. Now here, I think the Word of God is talking about the faithful servants that hear, well done, from the Lord Jesus Christ. To have our name confessed before the Father and angels as one who was faithful, who walked righteously, what could be better than that? Think about this. We have an award here on earth, and it lasts for about a minute, right? You'll take the award, you'll take that trophy, you'll stick it on a shelf, you'll stick it in a binder, put it away, and it's quickly forgotten. But when we do the things of eternity, the eternal God recognizes that work, and Christ affirms us, confesses us before the Father and His angels as a faithful servant. Folks, that should be our heart's desire to find the Lord, find us faithful tremendous reward in that. That's what we should strive toward. Well, this morning we've seen a church that has the reputation for being alive, but in reality the church was dead or dying. As believers, we need to have that time of assessment with ourselves. Am I a part of growing God's church? Or do I sit in the background and wonder whether or not it will grow? Gee, I hope somebody does something. God wants us to be engaged in prayer and service and being a part of a church body that is reaching people for Jesus Christ and seeing to their maturity. And rather than looking and saying, gee, I wonder when somebody's going to do something, I am not responsible for them. I'm responsible for me. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I a part of this remnant that's described as those who have not soiled their clothes by the world? and who will be confessed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I a part of those who have put it on automatic pilot spiritually and I'm just cruising through life? It's a question you can only answer for yourself. But I think it's a question that we need to ask ourselves and then commit to repenting in the areas that the Spirit of God identifies in our lives as individuals. 
Repentance, not regret, but repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we are to be faithful, God. Help us to not just be those with a reputation, but Lord God, help us to strengthen what remains and to be faithful in serving you, God, with full hearts, dependent hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.